Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to All Delights, show number 104. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. How is everyone? This fine Wednesday morning. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I am still buzzing, as you know from my... Starships with our stories, still going strong. So what we got today, well, I'm not going to do an editorial. What I'm going to do is I've got a little bit of a kind of an announcement or an, a couple of announcements, which I'll actually put at the end of the show, you know, because it's to do, again, it's to do with the, the book. And I don't want to keep on, you know, taking up kind of science fiction goodness time with me blathering on about that. But two good announcements to look forward to. We've got a poem by Lindsay A. Gardner again. We have our Fact Talk by Amy H. Sturgis. We've got Main Fiction is by Sean Williams. And just before that, I've got a little intro by Sean himself. So look out for that. We have, as, as always, come on, Larry, in number four, Progress Report. We have that. Then I've got the new titles, a couple of new titles to talk about. And like I say, a little announcement, two announcements about the book as well. So there you go, a fun-packed show. Do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So first up, another little poem by Lindsay A. Gardner, and it is narrated by newly mum, Diane Severson. Diane, I hope everything is going all right. Do keep in touch. The Send-Off by Lynn C. A. Gardner Recited by Diane Severson He stands on the docks, hands folded, silver faceplate blank. Only the eyes spark, glowing deep within like the outlines of eclipsed suns as he prepares to speak. 
The murmurs of the crowd fade as he begins. Soft, his voice carries, like the buzz of distant friends, intimate in our ears. All connected, all the time. He lifts a hand before him, wrists turned, fingers poised to grasp a dagger that suddenly appears, pointed towards his breast, close enough to draw one bead of blood, our blood price. His eyes dart upward, out of sight, mesmerized, mesmerizing, following his own specters, ghosts that have trapped us all. Macbeth speaks, sepulchral from the grave of eons. We hold one breath, forgetting that we chose this speech at random, flung to him like a gauntlet, safe passage or none. His voice, hypnotic, draws life from the air. No one stirs, breathing magic as the ghosts dance with our life, more real than we have ever been. His voice sinks, slows. The hands hover like peace, granting sleep once more to the dreams that make our hearts ache with forgetting. As these illusions waver, die once more, we sleep but cannot dream. Without another word, he boards the ship, fleeing before the startled rush of hand-clapped birds that follow, bright as blood, carrying our longing. The send-off first appeared in Mythic Delirium, issue 18, winter-spring, 2008. Hey, well, thank you, Diane, and thank you, Lynn. Mum. <laughs> Mum! Yes, they'll, that'll be... Mum, can I have? Dad! Dad, can I have? Oh, do, you, do we get that now? And then, 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 then it goes, oh, I don't want to, oh, do I have to? Clean your teeth, do I have to? Wash your face, do I have to? Oh, I want to come, Diane. Sorry, we're waffling there. Next up, Amy H. Sturgis with a fantastic talk. Little runs over around about 30 minutes, this one as well. So, and actually, Amy wanted to do it a little bit longer, but ooh, deadlines, but a cut, cut, cut. So, this is a little slightly condensed version of a talk Amy did. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today, in place of my usual history of the genre segment, I would like to share with you a presentation Anticipating Worlds Gone Wrong. The Rise of Contemporary Young Adult Dystopias. This is a slightly longer version of the talk that I gave in August at the World Science Fiction Convention, and a slightly shorter version than the one I just gave um, in September at the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. Essentially, I'm sketching out in broad strokes a project uh, in progress that I'm working on right now, about young adult dystopian novels. As a scholar of intellectual history, I am interested in big patterns, so please excuse me if I paint this broadly. I know that for every sweeping statement I make, an exception exists. I am interested in what has changed and what has stayed the same over the last 50 years in young adult dystopian novels, and also in the recent explosion of these novels. A couple of words of definition before I get started. First, I'm defining dystopia broadly to be a science fictional world gone wrong, 
that includes post-apocalyptic fiction and disaster fiction that focuses more on the dysfunctional world that emerges than the cataclysms or disasters themselves. By young adult, I mean books specifically written and marketed for young adults. These usually fall into categories such as 14 and over, 12 and over, and in a few cases, 9 and over. So we're talking about the tweens and teens, in other words. I was on a panel recently at, uh, I believe it was RavenCon in Richmond, Virginia, with some young adult authors, and they were discussing what is and is not allowed in young adult fiction today. And it seems that um, all of the taboo subjects, uh, explicit sexuality, explicit language, uh, torture, rape, all of the big ones, um, are in fact part and parcel of young adult fiction today. Really the only significant difference between so-called adult and young adult fiction is that in young adult fiction, at least one of the protagonists is of the same age as the target audience, that is, 20 or younger. Lastly, I have been looking specifically at English-language young adult dystopias. This means primarily U.S., U.K., Australian, and English-Canadian novels. And I'm also looking at English translations of novels that were originally published in other languages. This means primarily French-Canadian, French, and German. And so, without any further ado, let me get to my subject. Young adult dystopias are as old as young adult science fiction itself. Certainly, they predate my 50-year window of the works that I'm particularly interested in studying. Should note that many classic young adult dystopias tended to use a world gone wrong primarily as the motivation behind or the springboard for the heroic young protagonist. For example, think of Robert Heinlein's Starman Jones from 1953. The hero inherits a troubled earth with limited possibilities for his future. But rather than focusing on how the professions have grown corrupt or the wars of misinformation rage or how advancement is based just on birth, Heinlein uses this world gone wrong to justify the extreme measures his protagonist uses to escape Earth. Starman Jones cheats his way into the profession of his dreams, but ultimately, through talent and hard work and decency and good old-fashioned pluck, he overcomes his setting and he achieves what he wishes. So, as Joe Walton and others have pointed out, these kinds of dystopias are essentially a springboard for heroes, more than a warning about the kind of earth that we could in fact create if we continue in the direction that we are going. Another thing to remember about classic pre-1960 young adult dystopias is that they were balanced by science fiction juveniles with an optimistic sense of wonder. I think of Tom Swift and his Triphibian Atomicar. Nothing says optimism quite like a triphibian atomicar. Forget your rocket jetpack. I want one of those. As Paul Dean and others have noted, many early science fiction juveniles from Tom Swift, which began in 1910, and the Radio Boys and the Radio Girls, which began in 1922, to Rick Brandt in 1947, and Asimov's Lucky Star series, which began in 1952, these juveniles represented a pro-technology mindset, 
written by authors who believed in the potential and promise of science, and often were trained in the sciences as well, hopeful about what science would make possible in the future. And so these juveniles promoted technology as a liberating and empowering influence for young people. And the vision of, gosh, imagine how fantastic this is going to be, was a competing voice set against dystopian novels that suggested that perhaps the future might also have some problems with them, although they weren't necessarily problems that the hero couldn't overcome. Over the years, young adult dystopian fiction has thrived. Young adult dystopias rank among the most successful, loved, taught, and lauded young adult fiction of the last 50 years. Young adult dystopian novels have won Newbery Award, the National Book Award, the Mythopaic Award, the Prometheus Award, and this past year, one of the five finalists for the Hugo Award was, in fact, a young adult dystopia. But the 21st century has brought with it an unprecedented explosion in young adult dystopian novels. Now, here I'm going to make a few disclaimers before I talk more about my claim. I realize that young adult sales does not necessarily represent young adult readers. There's a phenomenon of adults cross-reading novels intended for a younger readership. But I would say this has been true since the first days of science fiction juveniles. I read Heinlein adults as a youth and read Heinlein juveniles as an adult, after all. I also realize that there has been an explosion in general in young adult publishing, so one would expect all figures to escalate, including the figures of uh, the number of young adult dystopias written and sold. Despite this, however, I think something very interesting is happening with young adult dystopias. What do I mean, you may ask, when I say that there has been an explosion of young adult dystopias? Well, I've been studying these English-language young adult dystopian novels, and it seems to me, from what I have found, that since 1960, there have been about 384 of these books published. Of the 384 that have been published in the last 50 years, 194 have been published since the year 2000. That means that the last nine years accounts for over half of the young adult dystopian novels published in the last 50 years. So what trends do these books represent? For one, I'd say these contemporary young adult dystopias are more varied in their theme than their 20th century counterparts, and in some cases, more sophisticated in a literary sense. As Sheila Egoff says, such literature may, quote, be the child's easiest entry into the speculations that trouble the adult mind. If this is true, it suggests that the adult mind has a greater spectrum of concerns now than it did before. These books are not just simply worried about the plight of the government, or rampant consumerism, or government abuse of civil rights, or religious extremism. Many of these books represent a whole series of concerns, and the worlds that they describe have gone wrong in a variety of different kinds of ways. There's also subtlety. Uh, villains are three-dimensional, often the twisted yet sympathetic product of this world gone wrong. And the moral choices that face the protagonists are complex, even ambiguous. 
I'm thinking, for example, of Jim O'Malley's The Declaration from 2007 and its sequel, The Resistance, in 2008. These portray a world in which a longevity drug has been discovered that allows people to achieve what is essentially de facto immortality. But it soon becomes obvious that if people are living longer and longer lives and in the process becoming increasingly fascinated with things like plastic surgery, that something needs to be done to control the population. And so children are outlawed except for those who choose not to take the longevity drug and essentially sacrifice their own lives in favor of creating another generation. Malley's books follow the plight of those who are born anyway, illegally, and how the state seeks them out and uses them as menial laborers, denying them the opportunity to have life-extending health care and the longevity drug. But the bad people, the villains in this story, particularly in the first, are really sympathetic as we discover how the system has essentially chewed them up and spit them out and turned them into uh, incredibly bitter characters. Raise a lot of questions about the differences between what we need for our health and what we need for cosmetics and aesthetics, and certainly how we treat each other, ourselves, and the issue of mortality when it seems that, in fact, medicine may be making that a moot issue. Another trend connected to this is the fact that there's a combination of dedicated young adult authors who write specifically young adult works and crossover authors who write both mainstream adult and young adult works. And in that, it's more like the early days of the subgenre, where authors like Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and Andre Norton were moving back and forth among these subgenres and writing for both audiences. Another thing I find interesting is that in many of these contemporary young adult dystopias, the emphasis rests on the world gone wrong rather than on the heroism of the protagonist. This is a marked contrast. As Noga Applebaum and others have noted, a number of these works suggest, through the world's gone wrong that they describe, an anti-technological bias. Technology is not a liberator, it is a violator. It's a reversal of what we saw in the beginnings. Um, authors are not trained in or sympathetic to the sciences. On the contrary, they are critical of the kind of world that uh, the scientific establishment has made. There are repeated themes of technophobia, glorification of the past and the pastoral, and many of these suggest that rather than coming up with new innovative inventions and methods for fixing the problems that our world has, it would be in fact better if we step back um, and give up some of modernity in order to return to a simpler time. At any rate, many are less about the protagonist than about the conditions he or she has inherited. I think immediately of Feed by M.T. Anderson, which was published in 2002, which is a story about corporate power, data mining, information technology, and consumerism all run amok as people are directly plugged in at the brain to the feed that bombards them with advertising and trivial information and essentially creates a, a white noise that 
really drowns out any individual thought. More about how electronics and communications have merged with the human brain than about the young people who are the windows into this world for, for us, the readers. In fact, many of these young adult dystopias are less about overcoming or changing the world gone wrong than about simply surviving it. This is a real shift, I think, in terms of mindset. It lowers the bar for the protagonist. For example, in Starman Jones, the worst the hero had to deal with was a lack of fulfilling job possibilities. But in a number of the recent young adult dystopias, the protagonist will do well just to reach the age of 18 alive. Farrah Mendelssohn goes so far as to call some of this literature anti-survivalist, because the happy ending, supposedly presumed by the young adult tag, doesn't appear. It's not unusual, in fact, for main characters to be sacrificed to the author's message of doom. Now, lest, lest this be considered a blanket criticism, let me admit I like doom. I like doom a lot. Uh, Mary Shelley's The Last Man is one of my favorite novels, and the whole plot can be summed up in the line, everybody dies. So I'm all about the doom. But it is an interesting shift in the focus of the authors. I think, for example, of the Shadow Children sequence by Margaret Peterson Haddix, which began in 1998. The last book in the sequence was published in 2005. The first book, for example, paints a portrait of a world with a very intrusive state that regulates a number of aspects of people's lives, including the number of children they're allowed to have. It follows some of the shadow children, children born above and beyond um, the regulated limits prescribed by the government. These children determine that uh, singly they are really um, very helpless waiting for the government to track them down, discover they exist, and kill them. But together, they might, in numbers, uh, actually capture the imagination and the mercy of the populace. And so a group gathers and marches on the Capitol with the idea of being caught on film and recognized, and the idea that once the people see their faces and once the, the government officials see their faces and their numbers their existence can no longer be denied or even really forbidden. But uh, they miscalculate because when they do march on the Capitol, the government simply turns their guns on them, mows them down, and kills them all. Another book that I think of, Surviving Antarctica, Reality TV 2083 by Andrea White, tells the story of a near-future United States in economic turmoil where children are educated through television, through reality TV. So, for example, to learn the story of the Alamo, they watch a recreation of the Alamo in which people compete uh, to survive, not many do, of course, um, as if they were the Texans and the Mexicans fighting at that historic battle. In this book, the rules have been changed to allow children to participate, and in fact, these kids are sent to what's inevitably to be their deaths, although if anyone of them survives, they actually have a chance at higher education, which is just almost impossible for the regular citizen to attain. So they fight uh, the elements recreating the first expedition to Antarctica. 
and the rest of the U.S. population watches uh, these young people to see who, in fact, if any of them, survives in order to win an opportunity at higher education. And in the process, the viewers learn a little bit about history, uh, particularly that of the first expedition to Antarctica. Again, the best the protagonists can hope for is to survive till the end of the book. It's interesting how some of these young adult dystopias are very bold in describing the immediate relevance of their message to our contemporary world today. Perhaps the best example of this is Cory Doctorow's Little Brother, published in 2008. In The Day After Tomorrow, United States, where a terrorist attack hit San Francisco, and the Department of Homeland Security, in the effort to wage war on terror, has itself become the biggest threat to its citizens, as the main character, Marcus, who calls himself Winston, a throwback, a, a shout-out to George Orwell's 1984, discovers when he himself is captured and uh, tortured by the U.S. government. This is an unusually pro-tech book, because it describes the young protagonist using technology to fight technology, thwarting surveillance, for example. But it is uh, a generational issue, as they use information technology, cybertech, rather than hardware. Of those novels that do describe change or revolution in the world gone wrong, many reflect a shift in the kind of heroism and agency exemplified by the protagonists. Now, certain aspects of heroism remain the same, really, across time in these young adult books. Themes like loyalty, self-sacrifice, independent thought, willingness to question. But others show a shift in perspective. Let me give you a quick example of what I'm seeing here. For example, in Paul Anderson's Vault of the Ages, which was a 1952 science fiction juvenile, the dystopian world that Anderson describes is a throwback to another Dark Ages after a nuclear apocalypse, essentially. And the young boy who is the main character, who's about 16, realizes that technology wasn't a bad thing. You could do bad things with it, like blow up the world with an atomic bomb, which is what had happened. But there were a lot of good things that could happen with technology, from being able to provide food or travel more efficiently to better fighting different kinds of illnesses and disease. So he takes it on himself to champion and promote technology, particularly when he discovers this vault of scientific information that he wants to preserve and bring back to his people. And by the end of the book, he is fighting an all-out war against mighty odds, trying to preserve the knowledge of what is essentially the late 20th century for the benefit of the entire world against forces of superstition and ignorance and greed that wish to maintain their power by keeping people in the state in which they currently live. And this young protagonist is successful. He goes out with a plan to bring technology to his people, and he sticks with it. And he's essentially a one-man or one-boy revolution. Compare that with, for example, Suzanne Collins' Hunger Games books. That's The Hunger Games from 2008, 
and Catching Fire from 2009, both of which I highly recommend. Great books. But the main character is taken against her will by the government, a government that represents essentially what is today Canada, the United States, and Mexico, although it's all one big kind of conglomerate North American group there called Panem. The central authority is the capital, and there are uh, 12 provinces. The capital forces the providences to give up a boy and girl every year as tributes to fight to the death as a reminder of who's in charge, essentially, an assertion of power. But whoever is the last person standing wins for their province, essentially food for a year. But the Hunger Games aren't just a brutal gladiatorial sort of sport, although that's certainly the case, but leading up to it is a whole perverse ritual of stylists and clothing designers and interviews and personal ads that really play off of the disturbing voyeurism of today's audiences and the entire reality TV mindset. So there's a lot of interesting things going on in these books. The heroine, Katniss, certainly doesn't want to fight. She wants to be left alone um, by everyone, in fact. Her, her mainstay is the black market in her district because she hunts illegally and sells what she hunts in the black market for things that she and her family need. But she is forced to fight, and um, what's really interesting is her defiance sort of makes her a, a symbol for the resistance. And it seems that revolution against the capital is going to happen. But, but Katniss ends up feeling just as manipulated, just as helpless to decide her own fate when she is embraced by the resistance as she did when she was fighting for her life in the Hunger Games. She feels coerced from both sides and really hopeless to change her plight. This is a different kind of hero than the hero who single-handedly leads a revolt and changes the entire world. In many of these contemporary young adult novels, the question is how much can one person really change his or her circumstances? And there's a sort of ambivalence about the answer. The trend that I see most starkly, however, is that the current popularity of young adult dystopias is not balanced by a corresponding rise in young adult science fiction with an optimistic sense of wonder. There's no real equivalence in popularity in terms of the old science fiction juveniles to series like Tom Swift or Lucky Star. The closest thing to it is probably the popular Star Wars young adult titles, Jedi Apprentice, Jedi Academy, those. But that kind of begs the question because they are set in a mythic past rather than an optimistic future. So I don't think they really count. The action heroes of today's young adult science fiction, like Six of Hearts, who's sort of a combination of James Bond and a hacker extraordinaire, are set in gritty cyberpunk dystopian realities. So they count as dystopias, not as optimistic sense of wonder pieces. So from what I see thus far, young adults' first and most protracted experiences with science fiction 
are likely to be dystopian ones. Jack Zipes and others have repeated the scholarly commonplace that readers are likely to turn to fantasy in times of dissatisfaction, looking away like a different reality, like my high school, but it's got vampires, or behind, like high fantasy, like something medieval, gothic, rather than ahead to an unwelcoming future. So it seems that the explosion of young adult dystopias, considered along with the popularity of young adult fantasies, such as the Twilight series, the House of Night series, and others, all of this suggests that young readers are feeling increasingly pessimistic about the future. But is this, in fact, the case? I've started looking just at the United States, because that's where I have best access to the data. And the answer I've come up with, just from my preliminary investigations, is yes and no. I looked at the Gallup Student Poll National Report in 2009, the Network on Transitions to Adulthood, sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania, and their analyses of monitoring the future data, and recent SERP, that's Cooperative Institutional Research Program data, which includes surveys of entering freshmen at universities across the country. And here's what I get. Young people, the millennials as they are called, people who are coming of age within the last decade, are more likely to distrust others, to disagree that humans are naturally good, or trustworthy, or fair, and more likely to expect another world war than the generations that came before them. And yet, at the same time, they are more optimistic about their personal futures, their job satisfaction, financial positions, and self-worth than previous generations have been. In other words, what's suggested by the current surveys and reports is that millennials are more pessimistic about you, but more optimistic about themselves. How does this relate to or explain the explosion in young adult dystopias? I'm not sure. Millennials are less pessimistic than the Gen Xers, the cynical and frustrated and gloomy emo folks, my generation, those growing up in the 80s and early 90s. Are these the ones writing the books? Does this explain the trend? It represents more what we 30-somethings think than what the current teens and tweens feel? Or do millennials like these novels because they confirm pessimism about others, and yet the millennials had the ability to think that these worlds gone wrong won't really happen to or affect them? My main interest is what it will mean for science fiction as a whole, that the next generation is getting a somewhat one-sided view of the genre. Or, I wonder, is it a one-sided view? Is the sense of wonder necessary to create lifelong science fiction readers, or not? Or is there a sense of wonder created by young adult dystopian novels that does serve that purpose? Will the readers of the young adult dystopias become science fiction fans in general? Is this the hook to catch them and keep them? These are the questions that I'm asking myself. Heinlein said that young adult science fiction was meant to prepare the next generation for space travel. Sylvia Engel said that young adult science fiction's purpose was to prepare the next generation for change. 
For what exactly are today's young adult science fiction books preparing the next generation? It's a question I'm going to continue pondering. I will post in the Starship Sofa forums a link to a list of all of the young adult dystopias that I have looked at, representing 50 years' worth of publications, as well as a bibliography of the secondary works that I have looked at regarding young adult dystopias. I look forward to being back with you soon with a regular history of the science fiction genre segment, and I thank you so much for your kind attention. Amy, thank you so much. You know, I should have bloody said, just record the whole thing. You know what I mean? What do I know? That was fantastic. Thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction, and it comes from Sean Williams. I'll give you a little heads up for Sean. Actually, you can hear Sean over on Sofa Note Show as well. We had him on a few weeks ago, and I'm going to try and get him back on the Sofa Note Show. He's a great, um, great guy, great character, and lots to kind of talk about. Sean Williams is New York Times bestselling author of Star Wars The Force Unleashed. Sean Williams has published 29 novels for readers of all ages, 70 short stories across numerous genres, and even the odd poem. He's been called many things in his time, including Premier Australian Speculative Fiction Writer of the Age, the Emperor of Sci-Fi, and the King of Chameleons for his diversity in his output. Best known internationally for his award-winning space opera stories such as Evergence, Godesia, and Astropolis. He is also the author of 10 linked fantasy novels inspired by the landscape of his childhood, the dry flatlands of South Australia, where he lives with his wife and family. Story Today is narrated by Richard Carruthers. He is an American lawyer, teacher who has lived in Buckinghamshire for the last 30 years. During his time, he's also directed plays in Her Majesty's Prison, The Mount, taught creative writing and run weekend residential courses, including how to write and market science fiction and fantasy. Come <laughs> there, Richard. Now, just before we get into the main fiction, I asked Sean if he would kind of just do a little intro until, you know, give you a little background of this story. So I'm going to hand you straight over. <laughs> that sounds so DJ, isn't it? I'm going to hand you straight over to Mr. Sean Williams. Hi, I'm Sean Williams. Thanks for choosing to listen to this wonderful new audio version of A Map of the Minds of Barnath. I wrote the first draft of this story around the middle of 1992, making Barnath almost exactly the same age as my son Sip. On a personal level, that's a terrifying thought. Where have the years gone? But professionally, I'm delighted that something I've written has such staying power. Barnath has been reprinted many times down the years, in Australia and overseas, including a translation for the Japanese market, where it was nominated for a Seon Award in 2002. It was also nominated for the Ditmar and the Orialis Awards. I'm excited that it's still finding new readers. It's the story I'm asked most about and the fictional world I've most wanted to return to. Where did the idea of Barnath come from originally? Science fiction writers normally run screaming when they hear that question, but for once I have an answer. The idea came to me in a dream. I was descending through a mine, level by level, and what I saw in the deepest levels was pretty much as described in the story, except I added one extra level to take it to its logical conclusion. The protagonist and his quest were the inventions of my conscious mind, because you can never have too much Jungian symbolism in one story, and so was the backstory. The rest, though, 
came out of that wonderful dream state from which so many good ideas emerge. The deeper you go into something, the more you find. This message is, at least partly, why the story has enjoyed such a long life, I think. Science fiction at its best says something about ourselves, in excavation, in a mirror, revealed through all manner of narrative tricks, and I like to think that Barnath is tapping into something that at least looks profound, even if it deliberately avoids saying anything too concrete about the world in which the story sits. Who really built Barnath? Where do all the people in the mine come from? What is the director? Why is time so screwed up? Where do the five other elevator shafts Martin sees lead? These questions can't be fully addressed in a single story, which could be frustrating were this a nuts-and-bolts exploration of the minds of Barnath. I'm sure the absence of answers is in fact another part of the story's success. It allows the reader to fill in some of the gaps, or encourages a metaphorical reading as well as, or even instead of, the literal. When Martin reaches the bottom of the minds, what does he see there? Feel free to come up with your own interpretation. It's taken me a long time to navigate the complex space of the minds of Barnath, and I doubt I've seen every last corner yet. This first map is a glimpse of a much larger world, one that's become increasingly strange the more I've tried to pin it down. That there are more stories here is something I've always been completely certain of, and time has borne that thought out. The recently released New Space Opera 2 contains Inevitable, the first story connected to Barnath to appear in 15 years. Then there's the anthology Godlike Machines, which will contain a 25,000-word novella, a glimpse of the marvellous structure and the threat it entails. These two stories further elaborate the world of Martin Cavill and his missing brother, the minds and the larger thing they're part of. There will be more. Of that I am completely sure. As the stories agglomerate around something much larger, something still taking shape in my mind, I look back on that original dream with something like awe. The deeper you go into something, the more you find. And that's the writer's job, isn't it? To dig deep and keep on finding. I hope you enjoy what this writer found this time, and I'll hope you join me when we go digging again. John, thank you. That was great. Little, that's just what we needed. You know, a little insight into a story is fantastic. So, Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present. Map of the Minds of Barnath by Sean Williams. The manager of the mines was a small, grey man named Carnarvon, wiry with muscle and as tough as old boots. A slight accent betrayed his off-world origins, one of the older colonies, I thought, or perhaps even Earth. He was sympathetic, in a matter-of-fact way, as though my position was far from unique. What was your brother's name? he asked. Martin Cavell, do you remember him? Carnarvon shook his head tapping into a terminal. No, but his record should. Y- yes, this'll tell us something. I tried to wait while he read the file, but impatience soon got the better of me. What happened? It seems he took a three-day pass to the upper levels, then chose to continue deeper when the pass expired. Carnarvon skimmed through the file to the end. Your brother died on the fifth level. How? The exact details are unknown. There was no body, no witnesses, and no inquiry. Assumption of death is automatic under these circumstances. A pretty large assumption, I would have thought. Nevertheless, he seemed quite content to leave it there. But ten thousand kilometers of travel prompted me to dig deeper. Would it be possible to 
see the place where he died. Possibly, yes, but he looked at me oddly. You don't know the mines, do you? No, this is my first time here. Nobody said anything. I only flew in this afternoon. It was my turn to look puzzled. Is there something I should know? Carnarvon shook his head slowly. You wouldn't believe me if I told you. So show me, or have me shown. You don't have to take me personally. No, I'll take you. It's been a while since I went all the way. He looked around the office, eyes itemizing the contents one by one, until they finally came back to me. If you want a grand tour, I'll give you a grand tour. Thank you. His capitulation was both unexpected and total. It made me feel slightly guilty for inconveniencing him. As soon as I find out what happened to Martin, I'll be out of your hair, I promise. That could take longer than you think. I'm in no hurry. He sighed and called his deputy into his office. I'm going down, Carmen, he told the woman. You're in charge until I get back. They shook hands gravely, and I thought for an instant that she was about to say something. But she didn't. She just watched as we left the office, her eyes filled with something oddly like grief. Carnarvon led me to an elevator shaft, handed me a hard hat and a dirty blue overcoat. He looked around the surface level, at the swarming clerks and technicians, at the administration buildings and bulk transport containers, and shook his head a third time. Let's go he said wearily, and hit down. The cage door closed and the floor fell away. The mines of Barnath are the biggest in known space and rumored to be inexhaustible. Discovered a century ago, they've turned our previously struggling pastoral world into a major mineral exporter. The 5,000 people, according to the unofficial tourist brochure, who worked at seven levels are capable of extracting over a million tons of any given ore per month, plus the same again in refined materials, most of which is exported off-world. Yet, strangely, the mines are completely independent of the rest of the planet, like a distant country or a very large corporation. Visitors are rare, especially to the deeper levels, and the flow of information to the world outside is often restricted as it was regarding my brother's fate. But the official policy on the surface is to let the status quo remain. The fate of the planet depends on a constant, if not large, supply of Barnath metal. So, while ore comes out of the upper shaft, any situation, no matter how unusual, can be tolerated. Carnarvon, if he was aware of his awesome responsibility, didn't let it show. We don't get many people here, he said, pausing to light a cigarette usually from off-planet. Those who have heard rumors and want to check for themselves. Most are satisfied with a few pamphlets and a quick tour of the upper levels. What about Martin? He was an exception, like you. I nodded, allowing him the point. What about the other miners, then? A handful, the ones called skimmers, lived nearby. Drifters are no hopers, usually. They only go as far as the third level, where we do the refining. Most permanent miners work the deeper levels. The deepest ones never come up at all. So some actually live down there? Of course. 
They're the ones that work best. My surprise was mild but genuine. This is a rumor I had heard and dismissed as unlikely. I'd never been in a mine before, but the thought of crawling for any length of time along what I imagined to be cramped, poorly lit tunnels made me feel claustrophobic. Why? I asked. Carnarvon looked me in the eyes, studying my reaction with interest. Surface people from around here, apart from as skimmers, don't work below ground because they're afraid of the mines. They're scared that if they go inside, they'll get caught. Gold fever? I joked. No. There was little humor in Carnarvon's eyes. Caught. I waited, but he did not explain further. If he was trying to scare me off, or warn me it didn't work, I'd come too far to be deterred by vague superstitions. The cage rattled to a halt. The door swung open and Carnarvon waved me ahead. After you. I nodded and entered the mines. One and two. The sparsely populated first and second levels are almost identical, and usually regarded as a single unit. These were what greeted the first settlers when they discovered the mines and sent the first of many expeditions into the depths of the planet. Carved from the bedrock, at 500 and 75 meters respectively, the two upper levels were found to be empty of ore and life, little more than half-submerged tunnels littered with rubble and dirt that they had been fashioned by Roth, races other than human, was obvious, however. Mankind had not been on Barnath long enough to begin such an ambitious project, let alone subsequently abandon it. Another species had therefore established the mines, emptied them of all valuable minerals, and left. Or so it appeared at first. When I arrived, new tunnels were being carved by skimmers in a half-hearted attempt to reopen the upper levels. The air was full of dust and the screaming of pneumatic and sonic drills. The weight of rock above and around me was almost palpable, a feeling compounded by the stifling half-light. Flickering electric arcs swung from carelessly looped cables draped along the tunnels. It was unexpectedly hot and uncomfortably damp. In some tunnels, it almost seemed to be raining. Gene Tarkwitz, the supervisor of the upper levels, greeted us as Carnarvon showed me around. She was an attractive woman, although filthy, grimed with moisture-streaked dust. When Carnarvon explained that we were heading on a grand tour, she looked surprised. Why? she asked, staring at both of us with naked curiosity. I've been topside long enough, Carnarvon explained, waiting for an excuse to come back down. Even I, who had known him little more than half an hour, could tell that his casual words hit a more complex reason. I thought it was about time. And you? Looking for my brother. There was both amusement and pity in her pale, orange eyes as she snorted disdainfully and waved us on. My tour of the first level passed quickly. Tarkwitz accompanied us to the second, which had little new to offer, and bade us farewell as we entered the shaft of the third. A load of processed ore climbed past us, deafening all those nearby with the sound of laboring machinery. The director has been active in the lower levels, she said. I've heard rumors. I know, said Carnarvon wearily. We'll be careful. If it comes for you, she asserted, it comes regardless of care. I haven't forgotten. Who's the director? I asked, 
but Carnarvon merely shook his head and motioned me into the cage. Take your time, said Tarquitz. I will, Carnarvon replied, and the doors closed. The lift fell, swaying gently from side to side, and although the first two drops had lasted little more than sixty seconds each, this descent took at least ten minutes. Three. The third level held the first of many surprises to greet the settlers. Its heart is an enormous chamber as large as five old earth cathedrals stacked one on top of the other, crisscrossed by ladders and pipes and startlingly well lit, a brilliant contrast to the upper levels. Its walls are orange and thickly veined. The air is full of the rumbling of machinery and echoing explosions. Huge Roth artifacts, inactive for the most part, cling to the walls and ceiling. Some are mounted like stalagmites on the floor, around which cluster the refineries, brought down a piece at a time by human settlers. Green-clad miners swarm like ants along the walls and walkways, issuing from the myriad tunnels that lead deeper into the earth. How many people work here? I asked, left almost breathless by the sheer scale of the chamber. Too large to be fully comprehended in even a series of glances, it provoked a feeling of vertigo so powerful as to dull the mind. On this level, something like six thousand, most of them in side cuts rather than the actual core. Your brother was one of them, for a while. I shook my head. The figure didn't make sense. It was larger than that which I'd received earlier regarding the total population of the mine, and there were still four more levels to go. But I choose not to pursue the matter then and there. I suppose that I'd misheard him through the constant noise echoing in the chamber. I tried to imagine Martin working here, and failed. We'd spoken briefly before his departure for the mines, but he had said nothing about intending to seek employment. Just a holiday, he had said, to satisfy his curiosity. What had happened, I wondered, to change his mind? The lift ends halfway down the chamber. We stop there to procure water bottles, to exchange a handful of words with the taciturn attendant, and to admire the view. Huge oral lifters floated past us, up, full, down, empty. Carnarvon informed me that the protocol forbade us taking such a direct route to the base of the third level. Between the midway point of the third level and its rock floor were only ladders. Nothing can truly do this place justice, he said, and I believed him. By then, I had an inkling that the Grand Tour was formed more than a quick circuit of the faces and offcuts, hence Carnarvon's initial reluctance to take me. I was glad that I had no one waiting for me above ground. It took us three hours to reach the base of the chamber, and the first of many way stations. We rested there for an hour or so, meeting a few of the deeper miners, called moles, who were heading upwards for a stint in the refineries and ultimately the surface. They were uniformly dirty, but only two-thirds were pale-skinned. The rest were deeply tanned, which I found strange. All shared a peculiar dullness of stare, a hybrid of world weariness which I later learned was called miner's eyes. As though nothing more could surprise them, they regarded the world with patient, cynical skepticism. I asked them about my brother, but received only quizzical stares in reply. Tarist, explained Carnarvon patiently. 
Some laughed openly, others touched my shoulder in sadness and went to sit elsewhere. Why is everyone so... I struggled for the word but couldn't find it. Unconcerned, suggested Carnarvon, a wry smile twisting his rubbery features. If they are, it's because they know something you don't. Which is? Don't ask me now, you'll... I, I know, I know, I'll find out later. His smile broadened. Exactly. When we had rested, Carnarvon showed me some of the machinery that fills the third level. The purpose of the ancient Roth mechanisms eluded me then, just as it has eluded human researchers for one full century. Then it was time to enter the shaft, the central column that plummets downwards through the four remaining levels. The cage was three times as large as the lift by which we had previously descended. Low benches lined two of the walls. A crowd of miners spilled from the cage, dressed in unfamiliar white uniforms. They stared at us, but said nothing. When they had gone, Carnarvon turned to face me. The journey really begins here, he said on the threshold of the cage. If you want to turn back, it's not too late. I shook my head. I need to know what happened to Martin. Why? He seemed genuinely unable to understand. Because he was important to me, I said. Am I in danger? Yes. His honesty was both dismaying and thrilling. Everyone who enters the mines is at risk, and the deeper the more so. It was my turn to ask, why? But Carnarvon, waving me inside, refused to answer. He stood silently by my side as the cage fell, not meeting my stare. Five minutes passed without a word spoken by either of us. If Carnarvon didn't want to talk, I wasn't going to make him. Then, after fifteen minutes, the floor lurched and I felt momentarily light-headed. Only then did Carnarvon speak, as though we had passed some unannounced barrier. The last time I passed this way was twelve years ago, heading up from the fifth level, swearing I'd never come back. He took off his hard hat and slicked back his wiry, grey hair. But part of me always knew I would, one day. And the same part knows there's no going back this time. You only get out once. If you return, the mines have you forever. I studied him closely, if this is a confession that I failed to comprehend it. Caught? I asked, using his own word. He laughed softly. Well and truly. I hate this place, but I love it too. And the people that work here, mad bastards that we are. His attention wandered back to his own thoughts. Reluctant to let the silence claim us again, I asked him a question that had been troubling me for some time. Why are we the only ones going down? Carnarvon laughed again. You noticed. Good. If he can answer that question, my friend, he'll be one step closer to grasping the truth about the mines. And he would speak no more until the cage bumped to a halt, and we stumbled from it. 4. Imagine a grey plain at midnight, rippled, in a series of low, undulating hills and valleys. The plain is in complete darkness, except for an area as large as a small town, illuminated by powerful white spotlights. In this lighted area sits an open-faced mine. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hacked into a hillside like a weeping sore. It is so dark in this place that nothing else can be seen. No stars, no horizon, just one patch of brilliant light and a slender line rising upward into the blackness. Take the plane and bury it 4,000 meters underground in a chamber so large that the walls and ceilings are invisible. And this is the fourth level. A faceless technician handed me a pressure suit, a clumsy outfit of rubber and carbon fibers, its stank of sweat and grease as though worn by thousands of people in its lifetime. Puzzled, I followed Carnarvon's lead and shrugged into it, leaving my outer garments in a locker. I felt oddly light, and I wondered if the air had a higher oxygen content that I was accustomed to. Carnarvon led me to an airlock and cycled the pair of us through. Poisonous atmosphere, he said, via the suit radio, explaining the suits if not the sight that lay before me. I watched as cranes swung and powerful vehicles unloaded their burdens beneath the spotlights. The miners, swarming across the face, looked like dark animals in grey suits. Hence, I suppose, the nickname Moles. What are they mining for? I asked. Here it's iron ore, replied Carnarvon. There are other faces nearby, cut for strontium and uranium. I hunted for a reference point, some means of guessing the size of the space around me, but failed. How big is this level? I asked, admitting defeat. Bigger than you think, I promise you. We headed through the gloom toward a row of huts where Carnarvon introduced himself to the level supervisor, a portly man called Stoli, whose suit resembled a blowfish with stumpy arms and legs. Still dazzled by the strangeness of the fourth level, I was content to let them do the talking. I remember you, said Stoli to Carnarvon, squinting through his plastic visor. His voice was liquid with static. Two years ago, three maybe. You worked here for a while. Twelve, corrected Carnarvon. Christ! Stoli winked at me dryly, as though sharing a joke I failed to understand. Time flies down here. Any news of the director? asked Carnarvon. It's out there, said the supervisor, shrugging. Definitely out there. 
We lost a few on this level, but not many. Usual story. That and the rumors of an eighth level are about the only things we can depend on down here. He invited us to join him for a drink, but Carnarvon explained that we were tired. This wasn't a lie, as far as I was concerned. My watch told me that eight hours had passed since my arrival at the mines, and my eyes were thick with fatigue. So, Carnarvon made excuses, and we bunked down in a crowded dormitory wing, with a dozen off-duty malls, clipped by air hoses to a communal tank, our radios silenced. Thus, I spent my first night in the mines of Barnouth, in a rubber suit, breathing air that stank of human, and wondering what the hell I was doing. And when I dreamed, it was of Martin, walking ahead of me along a dark stone tunnel, forever out of reach. A dull explosion woke me an unknown time later. When we stumbled out of the wing, a new hole had been added to the scarred hillside. The ever-present glare of the spotlight seemed brighter and the ceaseless activity of the open-faced mine more feverish than before. We dined on pre-processed slop in one of the few pressurized compartments of that level. The moles around us eyed us curiously, and it was a moment or two before I realized what it was that distinguished us from them. It was, quite simply, that we were talking. On the fifth level, where communication is only practical via intersuit radio, casual conversation is discouraged, even in the mess hall. How much farther? asked Carnarvon, regardless. The night's sleep had left me irritable rather than refreshed. I was impatient to make some progress on my quest to find Martin. Forever and a day, as they say, he glanced at me in amusement. You still think you'll be leaving here in a hurry? Why shouldn't I be? Because these are the mines of Barnath, my friend. They're not like anywhere else. Where you come from, everything's the same. It never changes. It'll be there tomorrow, forever. But here, if the director doesn't get you, then you're caught anyway. I put down my spoon. Appetite forgotten. There was a new strength in Carnarvon's eyes that bothered me. Left me feeling like an intruder. Unwanted. His state was almost a challenge, defying me to unravel the riddle of the minds on my own. Who is the director? I asked, pacing my words deliberately. Perhaps he saw the growing frustration in my eyes and the anger that lurked behind it. Or he was too tired of his own guessing game. Either way, he also put down his spoon and finally began to explain, after a fashion. The director lives in the mines, he said, or else it's an integral part of it. Either. We don't know much about it, except that it can go anywhere, any time it wants to. We don't even know where it goes between appearances. I've never heard of it being seen topside. But we always know when it's been. It? I asked. I thought you were talking about someone in particular. Your superior, perhaps. No. One of the early explorers coined the name. For whatever reason. And it's as good as any other. He paused, watching me closely, waiting for a response. So what is it? A machine? That's certainly possible. The mines aren't human-built. The Roth made them. The Roth left them here for us to plunder. Maybe they switched on some security system before they left. And the director is its enforcer. He shrugged. But few people really believe it's an alien artifact. Then someone must know about it, surely. Just think for a second before you jump to conclusions. It should be obvious. What if the Roth didn't leave? What if they're still in here, somewhere? 
I stared at him. Are you suggesting that the director is an alien? That's the most popular explanation. More than one Roth, perhaps. No one's seen it and lived. All we know is that it takes people working in the mines. Usually the best, most talented. Those it comes for and doesn't take. It kills. You're kidding. Carnarvon shook his head gravely. It's no joke down here. Deeper still, it's positively morbid. Live in the mines for a while and the facts start to get to you. You're always wondering if it'll come for you. And if you'll be taken when it does. I never heard any of this before. Of course not. The mines look after itself. Hardly anybody comes this deep leaves again. Those few who do leave hang around the surface for a while, and then go back down. The director is all part of the lure, and the trap of Barnath. You see? No one knows where it takes the ones it doesn't kill. He picked up his spoon and attacked his breakfast viciously. That's why I'm here. The mystery has me hooked. And me, why am I here? To find your brother, of course. Did the director take him? Carnarvon paused between mouthfuls. If you meet it, you can ask it yourself. I pushed my bowl aside and sealed my suit. Going somewhere? Carnarvon asked, amused. Outside, I said, I need to think. I shouldered my way through a crowd of miners and headed out into the darkness. The face of the cut was hidden by a low hill. The only light came from reflected haze and a crooked line of beacons strung along the grey-green dust that served for a floor on the fourth level. I squatted on my haunches and regarded the empty view for a long while. It was like sitting on the face of a starless moon. I didn't hear Carnarvon approach. Time to go, he said, putting his hand on my shoulder. Come in. I raised my head wearily. You say Martin disappeared from the next level? Yes, the fifth. That's what the record said, anyway. Then I'm coming. At least that far. Even through the visor I could see his skeptical smile curled like a question mark as though he doubted my motives. He's alive, I insisted. I can feel him. If you say so. All I want to do is to find him and take him home. Is that so difficult? Carnarvon helped me to my feet and we trudged back to the shaft building. I expected to don our old clothes, but we didn't. Pressure suits from here on he explained as we waited for the cage to reach our level. Just in case. The cage rattled to a halt and the doors opened. I regarded the interior with foreboding. Carnarvon didn't hesitate, however, so I reluctantly followed. The cage dropped downward. Again, I felt that strange sensation of giddiness halfway, but this time my companion chose to remain silent for the rest of the journey, lost in thought. 5. I was definitely lighter when I stepped from the cage. The disembarkation bay was an enormous room, sterile white and brilliantly lit. Behind me, six identical airlocks opened into the wall. We had entered the chamber via the second from the right. A large section of the floor was transparent, and Carnarvon gestured that I should look down through it. It took me a minute or so to find a sense of perspective. The view was surreal. Great blue sheets of energy slashed and hacked at something I couldn't quite identify. A hill, I thought at first, then a mountain. It wasn't until I realized that the dots drifting over the surface of the object were ore lifters, 
themselves so huge they made men look like spicks that I guessed the incredible truth. Trapped within the mines, orbiting slowly beneath my feet, was an entire planet. That's impossible, I breathed, as bolts of stupendous energy sheared free continent-sized chunks of rock. My vantage point was high, at least 30,000 meters, and the view spectacular. I know, said Carnarvon, but we're mining it anyway, and it's not that large, really, barely the size of Mars. Completely dead, of course, and metal-rich, and keep the mines active for a century or two at least. My gaze wandered from the planet across the roof of the incomprehensible chamber. Giant habitats clung to the naked rock of the roof like shellfish, upside down. Huge docking grapnels awaited ore lifters ferrying material from the scarred surface below. Everywhere I looked, there were men and women in white pressure suits, crawling like flies over an unimaginable carcass. How many? I asked, almost afraid of the answer. Two and a half million, replied Carnarvon, and I swallowed. I had in mind the unofficial government estimate of five thousand, which now seemed ludicrous in the face of what I was seeing. Surely someone must have noticed. To date, no one has. Carnarvon unsealed his suit, crooking the helmet over his forearm like an old-timer. As I said... People this deep rarely leave. But still, they had to come from somewhere. Exactly. A few, like your brother, come from the surface, drifting down through the levels over the years, but that still leaves us quite a large number short of the real population of the mine. Where, then? I had a vision of the miners raising families, which I immediately discredited. Only an idiot would have children in a place like this. We men never know the full answer to that question, said Carnarvon. Some miners come up from the deeper levels without ever having gone down in the first place. I studied him suspiciously, wondering if he was playing me for a fool. He wasn't. He was deadly serious. But he had to be lying. I too shucked my helmet and breathed in the air of the fifth level. It tasted faintly electric, and of the population that had breathed it before me. I could still feel the weight of rock around me, defying the view through the window at my feet. A planet within a planet? I turned away from the sight. It was too much. Come on, said Carnarvon. We have to log ourselves in. He took my arm and led me along the bay toward a corridor. The narrow passageway ended in a desk. A clerk behind a computer terminal greeted us patiently. Names? he asked. Carnarvon gave him mine and added, Skemmer, when asked for my profession. These with which my identity had been redefined did not escape me, from quester to tourist to skimmer in less than two days. Had something similar happened to Martin? The clerk handed me a white plastic ID card, which I absently tucked into a Ziploc pouch. Then it was Carnarvon's turn. The clerk accepted the title manager, with little sign of being impressed. When? he asked, typing at the keyboard. Forty-five to fifty-five. We had your predecessor here last year, said the clerk. He lasted a month. Taken? Killed. The clerk handed him a red card, which Carnarvon stuck to the front of his suit. You have a fortnight's grace, you and your friend, after which you'll have to find work. Of course. 
said Carnarvon, not at all phased by the apparent insubordination. Thank you. He commandeered an electric cart and drove me deeper into the habitat. Occasionally, we passed a circular window in the floor, reminding me that beneath my feet lay not the earth, my apparent weight suggested, but empty space, and then something far more remarkable. You'll probably be asking yourself the same question I asked when I came here. Carnarvon smiled at me sympathetically as he drove. I was a fusion technician from Earth, so the first thing I said when I looked out that window was, How do you pay your fuel bill? He chuckled self-deprecatingly. It wasn't until two years later that I learned where the energy actually comes from. And where does it? I croaked. Deeper still, he said. The next level powers the entire mine. The Roth were far more advanced than we are. All the equipment in this chamber and the six were just lying around, waiting to be used. So we used it. We didn't have to understand how it worked. Memory prompted me to ask. I thought there were seven levels. There are, he said. But I could draw him no further on the issue of this last. Instead, he described life in the fifth the way most of the mining on the planet is teleoperated. Miners spend nearly all their time in the ceiling habitats, only venturing to the surface to deal with circumstances that cannot be handled by automatics or remotes. The energy lances are directed from a cluster of habitats in a segment of the level that has been designated north, coinciding with the magnetic field of the planet. It was there I learned where Martin had worked. When I asked to be taken there, first Carnarvon smiled grimly, you haven't grasped a scale yet, have you? It'll take at least three days to get there by cart. One if we can requisition a shuttle. The corridor widened, became a busy thoroughfare. Miners in clean uniforms walked or drove by on unknown errands, and I watched them in silence, trying to remember what the surface, home, I reminded myself, looked like. But I couldn't. It was too far away. Carnarvon pulled us to a halt outside a small door. Clothes, food, and rest, he said. And then we keep going. I nodded numbly, and let myself be led inside. Standard uniform on the fifth level is white, cotton, one piece, fitted with numerous pockets and pouches. The outfits are comfortably simple, almost spartan. The food, however, is an order of magnitude better than that of the previous level being the production of hydroponic gardens scattered across the roof. The Roth left them, too, said Carnarvon as we ate our way through real vegetables and soy-based steak. And the habitats? Yes, Carnarvon smiled wryly. They were more like us than we'd give them credit for, most of the time. What do you mean? Well, everyone down here regards the director as almost godlike, he said when it's probably just a Roth that eats the same food as us and stands only a little taller. I finished my meal in silence, bothered by that thought. I put myself in the shoes of the first colonist, stumbling upon this tremendous cavern and its contents. What had they imagined they'd found? And why hadn't research teams descended upon the mines from all corners of the inhabited galaxy? I knew better than to ask for answers to these questions. All I could do was wait until the truth became clear on its own, however long that took. 
When we'd finished our meals, Carnarvon drove us to the transport dock where we caught a shuttle halfway to the northern quadrant. The stubby craft swooped low over the planet below, grounding me an unequal view of the mining operations taking place. From this angle, the sprawl of habitats above resembled a colony of small, white mushrooms suspended from a distant ceiling, or a world of sealed cities turned inside out. As we left the shuttle, a party of miners came toward us through the airlock umbilical. One of them called for my attention as he approached. Cavell, you old bastard, where have you been? It's been ages. You still owe me for Carol. I'm sorry, I said, staring at him. He was short, grizzled, and completely unfamiliar. You must be thinking of my brother. We look the same. No, he said, I remember you. We worked. One of his companions nudged him in the ribs. Oh, right, he said. You're on your way down. He reached for my hand and shook it. The name's Donahue, anyway. I guess I'll meet you later. He entered the shuttle with his workmates. The door closed on his smiling face, shutting out my confusion. What the hell? It happens, said Carnarvon. You'll get used to this sort of thing. I don't want to get used to it. Mental exhaustion, too many riddles in too short a time, was taking its toll. I just want to find out what happened to Martin and get out of here. A little more patience. Carnarvon smiled, a mixture of amusement and sympathy. Not far now. We took another craft the rest of the way, through a network of evacuated tunnels that crisscrossed the roof of the sixth chamber. Like insect, we crawled for seven hours along this hollow web, inch by strange inch while the world within a world turned implacably below us. Above the unnamed planet's north pole, vast forces crackle through the dust-filled vacuum. Enormous bolts of static electricity split the nether sky, and the habitats echo with thunder. Martin's old home, amidst all of this, trembles on the edge between stone and fire, just as many homes did, and still do, on this level. A security officer showed us Martin's file. He'd stated that he'd worked in the habitat for no less than two years. There must be some mistake, I said. He's only been missing for six weeks. She handed me a photo. Is that him? I looked carefully. The man in the hologram was older than I remembered, but definitely Martin. Yes, it is, I admitted grudgingly, but how do you explain... We don't, she said. We just accept. Carnarvon took the file from her, winking. Come on, he said. Let's go see where he was taken. I followed him out of the administration building, hating the curl of amusement I saw in his profile. With the end of my quest in sight, the last thing I wanted to hear was more nonsense. This is crazy, I stated. Sure, he agreed pleasantly. But blame the Roth if you have to blame someone. We headed to a nearby building where the files told us Martin had lived. He left his room at midnight, said Carnarvon, going to meet a lover, apparently. We followed a series of corridors, all equally unremarkable, until Carnarvon brought me to a sudden halt. The cameras tracked him as far as here, then lost him. I looked around. The corridor was empty and featureless. There was no sign that anybody had passed this way at all, let alone died here. What else does the file say? I asked, staring at the blank, polished floor.
Not much. Martin turned a corner, walked four steps, and vanished. The general consensus, as you guessed, is the director took him. Where? No one knows. Carnarvon put a hand on my shoulder. I'm sorry. I shrugged his hand away. I don't believe you telling me everything. Of course not, but I don't know everything, do I? Bullshit. His flippancy annoyed me, feeling my growing frustration. This has been one long cover-up right from the beginning. You told me I'd understand when I saw the fifth level. Well, I'm here, and I've seen it, but I still don't understand. Why can't you just tell me? I... My brother's disappeared, for God's sake. Look around you. Can you understand what's going on here? No one can. Your brother was taken in full view of a security camera, and it saw nothing. Four steps, zap, gone. Where? If I knew, I'd tell you. I swear. We lose something like 300 people a year under similar circumstances, and nearly triple that many are killed. So why doesn't somebody do something? Such as? What do you suggest? This has been happening for a hundred years. If something could have been done, we would have done it already. So close the mines. We can't. They're too productive, and the odds of the director striking is statistically insignificant anyway. You've more chance of dying on the surface. I felt caged in and wanted to strike something. You're lying. Not at all. If you think you can palm me off with false records and insanities, if you'll just calm down. No, I refuse to believe that Martin is dead. He's down here somewhere and I'm going to find him. I turned on my heel and walked angrily away. How? Carnarvon called after me. You're not the first to have tried, you know. I ignored him. Grief, anger, and a sense of betrayal fought for control of my mind, clouding my thoughts and judgment. I knew that Martin was alive somewhere. I could feel it in my bones. I wasn't going to let the matter go so easily. Martin would have done the same for me, I was sure, had our roles been reversed. I wandered the corridors, losing myself in the maze of the habitat, not caring if Carnarvon followed. Ten minutes passed before I regained my senses and realized that I was alone. When I did, I set out to begin my own investigation. I was allocated a room near his and started asking questions. No one could give me hard facts about my brother. Few people remembered him, as though years had passed since his disappearance. One even went so far as to suggest it had been years, but I dismissed her as a liar, part of the conspiracy keeping me from the truth, even though she insisted she had been his lover. My two weeks of grace passed quickly and fruitlessly, spent for the most part in mess halls and recreation facilities, always asking questions. The citizens of the fifth level, although sympathetic, were victims of the same passivity to fate espoused by the security guard who had shown me Martin's file. I despaired of ever learning the truth, but for the wrong reason. I wondered what Martin had done to warrant such a thorough whitewash of his sudden departure. And always everywhere I looked was the strangeness of the mines, the sheer improbability of it all, from the planet below to the habitats above. I felt overwhelmed by odd details gleaned from the people I interviewed, the way power was beamed by Mazer from the South Pole rather than sent along cables, the slag pit and apparently bottomless hall in the ceiling that was used to dispose of waste material, the odd discrepancy between the mass of minerals extracted from the planet and that which arrived on the surface of Barnath. 
the latter being roughly one-sixth of the former, and the cluster of Roth artifacts on the planet itself, which, although active, seemed to serve no other function than to send bright sparks of ball lightning hurtling around the sundered crust. But I refused to submit to the disorientation. I vowed that I would remain undistracted until I knew the truth. My life on the surface was waiting. I had to find Martin and bring him back, no matter how long it took. So great was my blindness that I disregarded what was staring me in the face, that, in order to comprehend what had happened to Martin, I would first have to comprehend the minds themselves, a task for which I was both physically and mentally unprepared. It wasn't until I met a man called Azimuth, a well-tanned mole from the sixth level, that I learned what fate was really awaiting me. I happened to cross him in a bar in the northeast quadrant of the fifth level, a dirty man, dressed in a stained undersuit from further up. He recognized my face and came to join me at the table. I remember you, he said. You came here looking for your brother, right? That's right. Do, do you know anything about... He laughed, anticipating my question. No, no, I never met him. But I heard about you on the news circuit up topside before I came here. I frowned. When was that? Well, let me see now. I came here five years ago. I heard this story six months before that. Five and a half years then. Sure, that'd be about right. I must have gaped at his words, for he laughed again at my confusion. You haven't noticed yet? He asked, misunderstanding. Time is all fucked up down here. You arrived what? Fourteen days ago, I forced out. And I'm in my sixth year, with the director's grace. Topside, it could have been centuries. You never know how long until you look. Azimuth didn't stop there. But I heard what he said. According to Martin's records, he had worked in the mines for two years. A fact I'd initially dismissed as ridiculous. If time really was askew deep in the mines, a possibility I could not discredit, given the wonders I'd already witnessed, then the obstacles facing me were greater than I'd imagined. But there was still hope. I forced myself out of my days. The newscast, I said. What did it say? Azimuth hesitated. You sure you want to know? I gripped him firmly on the arm. Tell me. All I remember is the headlines. Brothers separated, then reunited by death. Very tragic. I don't know whether that helps you or makes things worse, but there you go. You wanted to hear it. I gasped incredulously. Reunited, I echoed to myself, by death? He obviously interpreted my stunned silence as a sign of comprehension, and barreled upward from his seat, chuckling deep in his belly. Be seeing you, maybe. When he'd gone, I regarded my drink with despair, thinking dull, slow thoughts. The truth was like a heavy weight, the weight of miles of solid earth settling upon my shoulders. When my glass was empty, I wandered home, alone. That evening, I tracked down Carnarvon. He was still in the northern habitat, easily reached by an internal vidcom. I've been waiting for you to call, he said. I knew you would. I hesitated for a moment, balanced on the edge of total acceptance. When the verge eventually came, it didn't sound like me speaking. Who did you lose? My wife. His voice was even. His eyes reflected the sympathy I offered, unwanted. 
It took me a month to realize I'd never find her by looking. When I tried to escape back to Earth by one of the other shafts, I ended up on Barnuth, where I decided to stay. For all the years I've been manager, I've been waiting for someone like you to bring me back. And here we are. Yes, here we are, looking without finding again. The silence claimed us again. I only had one question left. Do you want to come with me? Sure, he smiled. The grand tour isn't over yet. We met the next day and logged out of the fifth level. The shaft accepted our pressure-suited bodies indifferently, and we dropped like stones into the depths of an impossible earth. Six. The sixth level opens onto the fiery face of a sun. Our period of grace had expired. I found work as an energy scoop operator and met the man called Donahue who had greeted me in the embarkation bay of the fifth level. He didn't remember me, of course, but we quickly became friends. He helped me adjust to the artificial gravity of B Station and taught me everything I needed to learn about my new job. It wasn't long before my tan was as deep as his, and my acceptance of the impossible almost as automatic. The sixth level does that to you. It overwhelms, it terrifies, and it can even drive a person mad. But those who make it this far and stay for any length of time tend to have been a little crazy in the first place. Carnarvon's time as surface manager served him in good stead, even though the post was irrelevant to the deeper levels. He worked in administration, somewhere in the heart of the central gravity platform. We met once a week to discuss our progress. Progress where? It didn't matter. We were both marking time before the inevitable. Then, six months after Carnarvon and I had entered the mines, he didn't show up for our weekly meeting. I dug around for information and eventually learned that the director had come for him during the week. His body was never found. I waited a month before moving on. My link with the surface had been severed. There was no point staying any longer than I had to. As though I had oscillated until then from a stretched rubber band, I suddenly found myself cut free. I started to fall. The level supervisor was sympathetic. There is only one way left to go, at the very end. 7. The cage opens, and I float into a transparent sphere, nearly 100 meters across, fixed to the base of the shaft like a bubble on a straw. There was no one present to watch or to censure me as I drift through the zero gravity, press my face against the surface of the bubble, and stare outwards. My eyes adjust eventually. Instead of darkness outside the bubble, I see... Stars. Stars. The shaft ends here. There is no downward path anymore, only up and up and up, forever. There appears to be nowhere to leave the bubble, but part of me wonders what would happen if I could. Could I travel through space and re-enter the mines from above, thus completing a strange loop of navigation? Even here it seems there are no answers, there are only questions, and me staring ape-like at the sky. What could be stranger than this? Like the first colonists, I have stepped into alien mines of Barnath, and found everything I didn't expect. Space beyond comprehension, time in disarray, resources without end, and... I suddenly realized what else the first colonists found. What prevented word from spreading across the galaxy? 
and what scientific jihad aimed like an arrow at the heart of the mines. Only one discovery could have been sufficient. People. People have always been here, wandering twisted loops through time, crossing and recrossing, occasionally colliding. They greeted altered the floors of the deeper levels, and integrated them seamlessly into a pre-existing society. Later arrivals were likewise assimilated, lured by mysteries and wonders in abundance, by a curiosity so great that not even the threat of death deterred them. Whether the minds themselves are from the future, or from the distant past, or whether they exist entirely beyond time doesn't matter. Nothing here is certain, except that humanity has moved in, and has therefore been here, forever, entangled in some unknowable cosmic scheme. Maybe the Roth never existed at all. Even the director might be human with a purpose of his own. My skin crawls, as though across an incomprehensible distance I am being watched. On the heels of that thought comes an impatience, a need to move, in any direction. Time is passing around me like the heavy surge of a deep sea. A minute here might be a million hours on the surface, for all I know, or a heartbeat, a whole lifetime. I want to travel, to be taken further. Now. But the director will come, I remind myself, only when it comes. Not before. Of that I am reasonably certain, if nothing else. My ghostly reflection stares back at me with Martin's face. The face of my other half, my twin. A not-so-distant light in the alien starscape moves like a tear down the face of my reflection. I sense that he is waiting for me, wherever he is. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Mr. Sean Williams. Sean, thank you so much. Hopefully I'm going to sneak a few more stories off you, Squire. <laughs> yes, God loves a trier. <laughs> and Richard, I certainly will be getting some more stories narrated off you. Thank you so much. Next up is our good friend, Mr. Larry Santuru. Larry! Hi, Tony and all. This is Larry Santoro with a preliminary update on last week's update, uh, the one that never posted. I guess I missed the memo. That was the one that told me that after Oral Delights 103, in which all of us talked for an hour and a quarter or so about the Starship Sofa stories and the upcoming Lord Dickens's Declaration book, that I wouldn't have to send a report that week. Anyway, I missed it. I did record it. I did send it. And it will follow this little note. Oh, by the way, at one point during the chat last week, during Ordelites 103, I referred to the new story as uh, Lord Darwin's Declaration. Uh, Darwin, not Dickens. Darwin, I guess, had been in my mind. And anyway, it's not a bad title, but it's not the title. So there, then that was just me being a 10 a.m. idiot when we all got together over Skype and talked about it. Uh, this will give you a preliminary few words about progress and process in Ray Lord Dickens. In the last week, the thing has grown huge. As of today, Sunday afternoon, uh, I think it's about the 11th of October, it's well over 14,000 words and climbing. And what has been fun, lots of fun about this, is the longer it gets, the harder it is to wrap it. And I think I could see now that the thing really could become a novel. I'm not going to let it, at least not yet. 
the harder it is to wrap things like that. It's not surprising to me. I guess I, as I keep discovering new elements to the characters, I keep finding out what I really intended for them all along and what the story is really about all along. It, it, the story keeps getting both simpler and more complex as it grows. Um, what had been a difficult thing to tell, uh, being restricted by length to description and action, has become easier now because the explanations can just vanish into character action. In other words, the characters can do something that lets me off the hook uh, of having to explain the thing to you in sneaky, writerly ways. Anyway, I'm not that sneaky. Uh, being an old theater guy, anyway, I'm, I'm more comfortable with this approach. I had a playwriting teacher back in my callow youth who would not, absolutely would not, let us write stage directions. You know, George crosses to the sink. He gets a glass of water. He said, if you want him to get a glass of water, make that imperative in his actions. Make it obvious by what the guy is doing. Well, that somehow stuck with me, and while I love to write descriptive passages, you know, triangulating the senses, as John Barth tells us to do, I, I do really hate to have to explain my world and its rules to a reader. And that's what's happening now. I'm letting the characters do things that let you know what their world is all about. And as I find these people doing more and more, I'm discovering more and more about their world myself. And that, by the way, Skeet, is why you haven't seen the pages yet. So, without further ado, and appropriately enough for a story that deals with time travel, here is last week's Progress Slash Process Report. This is Larry Santoro. Hi again, Tony. And for the listeners, this is going to be a very quick note on progress and process. I did the roundtable in the Starship Sofa Stories book this weekend with Tony, Josh, D, Skeet, and we did talk some about Lord Dickens, so I'll just skim along. Doing something like this, making a tale that falls somewhere between a long short story and a short long work, a novel, uh, offers some interesting opportunities for a writer to, when talking about it, wax profound on this job of writing. Uh, Today's piece of Codswallop in that line is that I've now seen the summit of the mountain and am now trying to find my way there. As I said in an earlier episode of these process reports, I don't plan when I begin a story. I just start typing on the subject and bungle my way through. But about a week or so ago, I had a breakfast epiphany and I saw the ending of the thing. I think I mentioned that before. There it was. It was clear as a dispersed fog, there was the top of the mountain, and I wrote it. Uh, I kind of liked it after I had written it. Doing that left me no alternative. I had to make a plan on how to get from here. At the time, our heroes were flying over Salisbury Plain in a vast airship en route to London and ruin, to there, at the dawn of man, as Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick called it, in some pre-Cro-Magnon, Neanderthalic cave. Uh, well, most of you have seen Skeet's illustrations, so there's no point in going into all that. And that's almost, but not quite, the ending of the story. But you get the idea. That, that image, as far as the story is concerned, is not complete without the resonance that the journey taken by our characters provides. 
pretty basic stuff. Now, as any good Welsh mountain climber will tell you, you got to know your mountain. So there I was. The peak is shining brightly in the sun and the blowing snow. And there I was, above that plain and that dirigible. And there were roots. I could see them. At least I could sense their existence somewhere in my head and at the tips of my much smarter fingers. But there were a lot of roots. Okay. Writing is making choices, decisions. This way gets us there safely and comfortably, or that way, one with pitfalls and dangers, but hopefully a route that offers more shades and colors to enjoy along the way. Now, of course, being myself, I try to find a compromise. Try to have it both ways. Ah, I realize, can't be done. So, here I am, planning that colorful way to get to the ending. Oh, another quick thing. In my attempts to get all the material I dredged out of my subconscious into this thing, I suddenly found myself, last Friday I believe it was, veering sharply away from one potential route and into a whole new set of complications. Interesting. It, it led me to a place I'd visited in London decades ago when I lived there as a youth, a callow, fresh-faced lad first encountering the joys and pricey frustrations of Soho on a Saturday night. Without too much dwell on that matter, I am now finding that route to the top a little more interesting and maybe a little more complicated than I thought. So, that's it. I hope this tweaks your interest. Oh, listen, can't I shut up? I, I wanted to let you know, I'm not that agonized. I know Tony introduces these notes with joy and lush praise for the sweat and pain I'm obviously experiencing getting from here to there. It's just me trying to be a more interesting Larry than I know myself to be. As I've said many a time to friends, writers are really dull people for the most part. We spend a lot of our time just sitting in a room, staring at a screen or a piece of paper, dredging things up from our own or someone else's pasts. Anyway, trying to keep these recordings a secret from my boss, that's what gives me that kind of rushed, breathy gasp that I seem to have. And my boss is already pissed about that Olympic thing, so the less said about that, the better. So anyway, here I go. I'm off to work again. Oh, and by the way, I've never climbed a mountain. I know people who have. I've read some books on the subject. I've seen pictures and watched a few movies, but me, no. See? Boring people, writers. Well, this writer, Larry Santoro, staggering calmly up that mountain and loving it all. There you go. Larry, going to be worth it in the end. <laughs> I got an email off Larry. <laughs> Bless him. He's one of the nicest guys. I could just give him a big hug. Do you know what I mean? He's one of the nicest guys I know there. Just, I got this email. It was just, Tony, you, Tony, you know, you know the story, the, the story I'm writing. You know, <laughs> yes, Larry. Well, what, what, what happens? You know, it's his story. <laughs> He's asking me. Well, what, what happens afterwards? Do, can, can I, can I use it afterwards? It's <laughs> like, Larry, man, I'm just so like on hands and knees grateful that he's he's doing this, and the guy's asking us, can, can he use it afterwards? Of course you can, Larry. Actually, this is what this will lead me into the the two announcements that I'm going to make about Starship Sofa's Volumes One. 
First off is, now this is for Starship Sofa. This is not for, kind of the, the next one is a kind of Spider-Robinson related issue. This one is purely, so don't get them kind of confused. This is Starship Sofa related issues. I have the the three books. You know, now there's, there's the three books. There's like the, the paperback, the deluxe edition, and the hardback it, kind of annual, you know, like coffee table edition. I have numbers one of each of them. These are the first ones that have kind of came from Lulu, came hot off the press from Lulu or from wherever Lulu sends it out to. And actually, the hardback one and the paperback, the, the, the first paperback one, I had asked D for them ones. You know, <laughs> like D, is there a chance I can have them ones? I had the the kind of middle edition one, but I wanted all three of them because what I want to do, I'm going to sign them. Each indiv- each one will be signed, and then I'm going to sell them as like a kind of a lot. And it'll be again, it'll be the first one who kind of emails us and says it. Them three, as I said, the very first ones is going to be two hundred pound. So it's the first, you know what I mean? And like I said, again, it might, they might not go, but it, it's just coming up to Christmas there. You know what I mean? It's a little special treat for anyone who's into science fiction. These are the the first. And how do I, how do you know the, well, you've, <laughs> you've just got to kind of take me word for it. These are, the, honestly, these are, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll say this every week. You know what I mean? I've got this one now. No. I had, you know, we've got that kind of special one coming out for Spider Robinson, and that's the kind of one-off. And I've had numerous emails about, you know, getting this kind of one-off thing, and I kind of do that, you know what I mean? I've kind of that's the way it's gone, and that's how it had to be like that. So what I have done though is I've got them three books, first editions. I will sign, I will actually sign it, and you know, put a little whatever if you want any words wrote in. Whoever comes up and asks for these, if you want us to sign anything else, and cut my finger and put blood on you know, I signed it in blood, I will do that. So what you're getting, £200, you are getting the first edition, the very first one that's come off the press of each of them styling books. So there you go. Please email me if that's what you're after. You know, in, in its own little way, this is a little bit of history. Do you know what I mean? 20 years down the way, they might be talking about starships. You never know. But whoever gets that, these first ones will have them to say, well, I knew. I had the belief. <laughs> I'm not going to put it on the website. It's just, again, it's kind of first one. Just send us an email and that's the only way I can kind of do it. You know what I mean? If I had a, a better way to kind of, I don't know, if you know a better way? Starshipsover at gmail.com. Next up is the announcement about Larry and his story. I've had, a, again, a number of emails about this story. And this story is going to be narrated by Larry, so we'll all get to hear it on the show. And then, like I said, that one story is going in the kind of book as a one-off. You know, and I think Dave's going to put it probably at the front of the book. And that book sold, and that, that money there goes straight to Spider Robinson. What I've kind of thought is, because it's, and it's all kind of to get spider, you know, and it's a good cause. What I'm going to do is that story, along with Skeet's new artwork, is going to be available for like a PDF download through the month of December. So beginning the month, the 1st of December until the end of December, you'll be able to come to the site and download that story in a PDF and check out the new artwork by Skeet. And that's going to be 2 99 and in that, all that kind of money that's made in that month, again, that'll go with the book money that he that's 
there, and that will go over to Spider Robinson. Once the end of December comes, then again, that's it's cut off, and that story belongs to Larry. <laughs> I've had my use out of it, and it's Larry's, and that's probably, you know, hopefully Larry will get that sold, maybe sold somewhere else, or actually in another anthology. And like I say, if we make any money, it goes to Spider Robinson. So there you go. Look out for that in December. Again, I will mention this again on the show later on. So, two options for the book. The very first ones, priced at £200, the three of them. A one, a totally one-off one there. And if you wait till December, you'll get the chance to buy the actual ebook or the, the, the PDF of Larry's story in written form. And that's, you know, that's more a gesture. Do you know what I mean? It's just... You know what I mean? It's just like check out Skeet's new artwork for it, and you know check out the story. But it's just like kind of at this that time of year. Do you know what I mean? Things aren't like you say going too well over at Spider's house, and it would be just a lovely gesture if people just you know you've bought me book. That's great. Thank you so much. Just a little offer there for to help out with Spider Robinson. <laughs> So, coming on to new titles. Two new titles come out this week. We have David Anthony Durham's The Other Land. This is book two of the Assisia trilogy. We also have Peter F. Hamilton, The Temporal Void. The Sunday Times top ten bestseller, Peter Hamilton there, no less. So, straight off with The Other Land's David Anthony Durham. The apocalyptic struggle against the conquering Merin has ended and a victorious Corin Akron reigns over the Achaean Empire of the known world and bolstered by her glowing mastery of the sorcery powers contained in the Song of Elnet, she rules with an iron hand. But the rebuilding of a war-weary empire is not easy. Disturbing news reaches Arcanian court from the mysterious other lands and Corin dispatches her brother, Daryl as an emissary across the uncharted seas of the grey slopes. From the moment he sets foot on the distant continent, the former brigand is caught up in a web of ancient rivalries, resentments, intrigue and treachery. His arrival ignites a firestorm that threatens the known world with the invasion once more, an invasion that would surely dwarf anything his homeland has yet faced. So the wheel turns again and a new cycle of world-shattering and empire-shaping events begins. In this dazzling sequel to The War with the Mian, David Anthony Durham's singular imaginative vision continues to expand the known world and confirms his place as a new master of epic fantasy. Praise for David Anthony Durham. Durham has won the acclaim for his historical novels and brings his knowledge of the past and other cultures to create a rich and compelling world, The Times. SF site says, complex, multi-layered, a world whose history feels as real, complicated and unpredictable as our own. Daily Telegraph says, suffused with a feeling of Greek myth and legend. I've heard loads of good talk about, you know, this book and David Anthony Durham. David Anthony Durham is the kind of, you know, I so much wanted Gold Seller to kind of win the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, but David Anthony Durham has kind of picked it. Pipped them at the post there. It's a great cover. It's just like a distant kind of rocky hills, black cloudy skies and some a couple of ships and seagulls blowing in this kind of storm. But it's 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 a nice cover. When, actually, if you get a look at it, you know what I mean? It's it's something unusual about it. It's it's almost real, but it's not. You know what I mean? It might be kind of real photographs or real images. Very nice. 
The Other Lands by David Anthony Durham. Double Day, priced at $12.99 trade paperback. Next one up is Peter F. Hamilton's Temporal Void. And like I say, this is the Sunday Times top 10 bestseller, Peter Hamilton. What a chunky thing this is. 744 pages. It is a monster. The Guardian says, mind-expanding ideas, deft plotting, and a convincing depiction of political intrigue. Cover illustration is by Jim Burns, and it's a kind of strange, you know, I can never really get a grasp of Peter F. Hamilton's work. You know, is this, I think it's a ship on some sort of like a desert landscape, and in the background there's like a cityscape there, but it's all rounded shapes. (laughs) You know, there's no kind of straight line structures in any of Peter F. Hamilton's work. But I'll give you a blurb on the back. The intersolar commonwealth is in turmoil as the launch of living dreams pilgrimage into the void draws near. And with the enemy's fleet fast approaching on a mission of genocide, an intersign war has broken out over the destiny of humanity. Defying the increasingly desperate factions is Paul Armeo, a ruthless single-minded investigator. Beset by foes from a distant path and colleagues of a dubious alliance, she is fast losing her race against time. Meanwhile, somewhere in the Colwyn city, Armita is coming to terms with the discovery that she is the second dreamer and therefore on the run from just about everybody. At the heart of all this is Eddard, the water walker who lived a long, long time ago and deep inside the void. He is the messiah of the living dream and visions of his life and crusade against the corruption, injustice and violence are shared and inspired by billions of humans. Eddard's glorious captive story is the driving force behind living dreams' pilgrimage. A force too strong to be thwarted and as his final triumph draws close, the true nature of the void will finally be revealed. There you go. The Temporal Void, Peter F. Hamilton. Price start, $8.99. You get your money's worth with Peter F. Hamilton. What, like I say, what a chunky book. Which one will come? Book of the month, book of the week. I think it's going to be Best New Writer. David Anthony Durham there with the second one, The Other Lands. There you go. That is New Titles. Show number 104. I hope you enjoyed it. Please, like you say, emails. I am here. I try to answer. Well, I, I think I do. Every someone's been sitting there saying, "You do. You didn't answer my email. I sent you two emails. You didn't send them." But I honestly try my best to answer every email, unless I forgot. Jim Campanella saying, "Now you don't bloody answer my emails." Sorry, Jim. So yes, starshipsover at gmail dot com. I have also got Google Wave theirs now, so. I think it is starshipsover at googlewave.com. Get in touch that way as well. I'd just like to say a big thank you to Roy who invited me over to the Google Wave. Roy, thank you so much. We need more people on there, but I'm looking forward to kind of working with Google Wave, you know, really connected with the show. That's something I'm really excited about. Roy, I might be calling on your talents, sir. <laughs> Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.